Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to the special reef keeping edition of the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. Every week, I'll bring you a topic on marine fish or reef keeping, and once a month, like this one, I will bring you an interview with a columnist from Reef Keeping Magazine, found at reefkeeping.com. Today, we're joined by Chris Jury. Chris has been keeping reef tanks for more than five years and has been working at retail fish stores for more than three years. This has given him a unique opportunity to be in contact with thousands of aquarists. Chris is currently working uh, to finish up a dual set of bachelor degrees at Michigan State University in zoology and Spanish, where he is focused on ecology and has done a lot of independent work on corals and reefs. Chris plans to pursue graduate work in coral reef ecology and eventually a doctorate degree in marine biology. Chris is also an active member in many online communities and his local reefing club, the Mid-Michigan Marine Club. In this month's edition of Reef Keeping Magazine, Chris has written a very interesting article, something that I have talked about multiple times but have not gone into this length of detail. Uh, the article that he's written is uh, basically evolves around the myths and improper naming that we use commonly for our corals, for you know the common classifications of soft corals and LPS corals and SPS and so forth. Basically, the article that Chris written, uh, had written is going to go into depth on why this, this classification that we use is bad and kind of some ways on how we can uh, more properly name our corals and classify our, our corals in the marine aquarium hobby. So at this point, let's welcome Chris to the show. Hi, Chris. Hi, Rob. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Now, uh, this is an important article, in my opinion, that you've uh, you put together here for reef keeping. Um, can you take a minute to explain to us why you wrote it and what exactly you're trying to get across to the readers? Sure. Um, well, I, I've had experience um, with lots of reef aquarists over years and years now, um, and it's been my experience um, that a lot of folks really just don't have very accurate images and understandings of where a lot of corals live in nature. For example, um, corals, for the most part, in my experience, often get categorized into one of five categories, either mushroom polyps, zoanthids, soft corals, LPS corals, or SPS corals. And a lot of times, at least in my experience, folks seem to want to base all their husbandry concerns and um, uh, anything that they're going to do to take care of these corals or plan for these corals on those designations. And if we look at nature and look at how corals are arranged in nature, it really isn't that way. It isn't based on those designations. So it's really, it's really kind of a myth, I suppose. Yes. Now, one of the things that I know that I have mentioned on past shows, I have specifically <laughs> called out the the common hobby terminology of LPS and LPS. And I know, like I said, this is something that I've stated many times in the past, that there is uh, absolutely no scientific separation. There is no, in a lot of cases, there's no reason to separate it even in the hobby. Right, absolutely. I mean, um, if you look at, if you look at corals, if we looked at all the species of, of stony corals and line them up, um, I suppose on a gradient, on a spectrum, from the smallest polyps up to the biggest polyps, 
you'd see that it's it's a continuous gradient. There is no divide between big and small polyps. It just keeps going from really small to really big. And most of these corals can be found in all sorts of different habitats. You'll find corals with really, really small polyps living on reef crests, but you'll also find those same small polyp sorts of corals living in mangroves. Or you might find different kinds of small polyp corals living in mangroves or very deep down in the water. Same thing with large polyp corals. You find some of them growing in very shallow water, very strong water flow, other species growing in very dim light, very, very um, gentle water flow. Okay, now uh, in the article that you, you put together that's going to be released in Reef Keeping this month, uh, you call out a specific myth, and basically you're trying to expose this myth and, and show everybody that this stuff is just not accurate. Uh, can you take a minute and tell me about some of the common myths, uh, you know, just elaborate on the stuff that you were just speaking to a little bit more about the common myths that hobbyists, uh, both educated and not, I think it's important to note that there's a lot of uh, experienced uh, reef keepers that, you know, are, fall victim to this also. So can you take a minute and kind of explain this myth and how it relates to the hobby? Yeah, absolutely. Um, really, really what it is, is it's a matter of looking at coral reef zonation. Now, being that I'm really an ecologist at heart, I've been trained um, very much in ecology, when I look at an environment, I'm really looking at functional groups in that environment. And that's kind of the way I approach uh, coral reefs and coral reef tanks. Um, if you look at the species assemblage on a reef crest, you'll notice that there are certain species that grow there that usually don't grow in other places. They're really specific to those that particular biotope. They need the conditions that are found there. They need the light, they need the water flow, they need other sorts of conditions. Now, if we look at a different sort of habitat, if you go down the reef, um, down the floor reef, say 20, 30 meters, well, now you're in an area where there's much less light. Um, oftentimes, the water flow is more gentle, although not always. Sometimes the water flow is very strong at depth, and you'll find different sorts of corals growing there. Now, what people have often assumed in the hobby is that the, the quote-unquote SPS corals, the small polyp corals, live only in shallow water where there's very strong water flow. If you go to a reef zone, um, what you'll oftentimes find is you find corals at the very top with small polyps, at the very bottom with small polyps, in the middle with small polyps. So the zonation is not based on the groups that we define in captivity. And the problem is we've gotten into this myth of believing that those designations do describe the zonation. That's really just not accurate. If we want to have the most successful tanks, if we want to have the healthiest corals and the least problems, the least mortality, what we should probably be looking at is the zonation that happens in nature and look, at, look to nature to help guide our reef tanks and how to build the species assemblages. And uh, a good point there is it's not, at least in my opinion, it's not just to reduce mortality and just keep them alive, but actually to you know help them thrive overall. And using the term such as SPS, as you mentioned, a, a, a coral that a hobbyist might refer to as an SPS, or you could have two totally different corals that a hobbyist would refer to as an SPS, could be found in two totally different re regions. And, you know, the, while they may grow in each other's, it's, it's not the optimal 
or best situation for them, correct? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, um, you'll find corals that um, normally grow on a reef crest. For example, some of the tabular um, Acropora species, something like um, Acropora or Acropora, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, Hyacinthus, you might find that species most commonly on reef crests, but you'll also see it every once in a while in a lagoon. Now, a lagoon probably is not the preferred habitat of that coral. It can survive in that habitat, but it's not necessarily the best place for it to grow. Um, but for example, you could certainly move a polar bear down to Florida, but that polar bear is not going to thrive there. He's going to have a tough time getting along. It's the same thing with a lot of these corals. And if, we, if we're keeping corals in environments that are not the ones they've evolved to live in, that they're designed to live in, certainly they can survive much of the time, but they're not going to be nearly as healthy as they could be. You know, they're not going to attain the colorations that they would in nature. They're not going to grow as quickly as they would in nature. They're going to be much more prone to problems. They're going to be much more prone to um, partial mortalities or full mortalities. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's not just a matter of mortality. It's a matter of getting the best results out of the corals. Yeah. Now, I mean, basically, you know, keeping with this whole myth thing, uh, one of the common problems that is seen, and it's just, what's just not accurate uh, that you you know you get to in the articles, is a sim simple thing like SPS coral need to be in a tank that have extremely low nutrients, extremely bright light, and extremely high water current. Now, let's take a minute, and, and I'd like if you could break down each one of those. And, and the first thing that I'd, I'd like to start with is, is the lighting. Just because it's got small polyps, that has absolutely nothing to do with its lighting needs, correct? Absolutely. You couldn't have said that better. Um, small polyps have nothing to do with where in the water column a coral normally lives. Small polyps, just, there's no reason they should be related to lighting level. You'll see corals with very, very tiny polyps growing at the very surface of the water. You'll see them growing intertidally a lot of the time. You'll also see other species, or sometimes even the same species, growing in very deep water, 100 feet down, 150 feet down, very, very dim light down there. Pol polyp size just has nothing to do at all with how much light a coral needs. What's important is the species we're talking about or the genus we're talking about. Different species, different genera are evolved. They're designed to live in different places and it has nothing to do with how big their polyps are. And it, just, I mean, that's exactly uh, the thing that I've, I've tried to, you know, explain to people for some time now. Now, the second part of that, your water current, uh, again, lighting, water current and nutrient level. Now, when we're talking about water current, the SPS are commonly said to need extremely high water currents. Now, again, the size of the polyps has nothing to do with you know, the amount of water current that's needed. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, the growth form might have something to do with water current, but the size of the polyps doesn't. Absolutely, absolutely. And oftentimes, when we're getting a little bit more, more specific, say we're looking in particular in the genus Acropora, or Acropora, depending on how you pronounce that one again. If we're looking in that genus, there are around 350 species in that genus. That's, you know, a that huge genus. 
that we know exactly. Yeah. Um, no, they they are describing new species on a fairly regular basis. Um, Varen, um, Charlie Varen just described several new species within the, the last few years. I mean, there there are a lot of completely uncharted areas, um, especially in the Pacific Ocean, where there might be corals we don't know about. Um, but in any event, um, if we if we were looking um, at that genus, and the reason I picked that genus is it's it's the biggest coral genus. It's right. it's very very diverse. Yes. Um, there are as divide or um, defined rather by Varen, I believe about seventeen different growth forms that he recognizes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a lot certainly right. for hobbyists. We probably don't need to know all seventeen, but you know if we knew a half a dozen, maybe 10, something like that, that would be really instructive. Because, for instance, uh, a tabular species, and there are several tabular species. Can you tabular describe means, tabular for us real quick? Yep. yep. What that means is they form um, what looks like a tabletop. These are the table acros okay. that folks often get. Now, these guys, they're designed to live in areas of really powerful water flow. All those species and it may be hyacinthus, it might be um, several other species, they've, um, they've kind of developed such that they can utilize that really powerful water flow. Now, if we look at that genus, if we know it's from the genus Acropora, and we know it has a tabular growth form, we have a really good idea of where that coral lives in nature and what kind of conditions we need to provide for it. On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, if we look at some other species in that same genus, again, the genus Acropora, if we look at some of the bottle brush species, now, <laughs> bottle brush, um, because they look very much like brushes, they, they have real thin branches, and they, they look almost kind of wiry-like, maybe. Um, those species normally live in much calmer water flow. They'll, a lot of times, they'll They'll grow in lagoons, or they'll grow in protected places on the reef, or they'll grow in deep water. If you were to put one of those species in really strong water flow, it wouldn't do well at all, because that's not the environment that that coral has developed to live in. A coral like that, you'd want to place in much um, much more moderate water flow. Again, it's from the genus Acropora, but it's a different growth form, and that growth form is instructive when we're trying to figure out how to care for these corals. So growth form uh, can be a factor that's taken in when we're trying to describe or request uh, specific needs for our, for our coral from other hobbyists, or if you're trying to say, you know, what do I need to keep a Acropora? That's not good enough. But to say a tabletop or a tabular Acropora, then you could actually get some worthwhile information out of that. Now, uh, to move on to the last uh, last thing that I wanted to mention on this was the nutrient level. Now, this kind of ties to flow rate, uh, the water current that we just talked about, because I have seen in many places that small polyps require high flow in order to get sufficient nutrients. Can you speak to that? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, for for really any sessile organism, um, sessile meaning um, attached to the bottom, so those are going to be... Move. At- Exactly. That's going to be things like corals, um, clams, sponges, things that are stuck in place. Um, Any of those organisms are very, very much dependent on water flow. But I think the important thing there is that they're dependent on water flow, not a certain type of water flow. I I mean, to say that it's it's a small polyped 
coral, because it's got small polyps, doesn't mean that it requires a lot of or high water flow to bring in sufficient nutrients. Yes, yes, that that I would definitely agree with. Okay. Um, again, it's not it's not the size of the polyps that um, is really determining where these corals live and what they need. Um, that has to do with um, other factors entirely and things that we probably couldn't tell just by looking at a coral um, unless we know a little bit more about it. You know, if we knew nothing about corals, you know, if this were, if we were just discovering these animals um, for the very first time and we looked at them, there's no reason to think that a small polyp needs stronger water flow than a large polyp. There's just no relation there. Right, right. Now, a lot of these guys, um, as I was mentioning, uh, with the Acropora example, some of them will live where there's really strong water flow. One of the benefits to living where there's really strong water flow is that you, you get a lot of water passing by you and anything that's in that water passes by you. So that, that um, provides a lot, a lot of opportunity to capture prey. And many of the corals on outer reefs are very, very effective at catching the plankton out of the water. And there's a good amount of plankton out there for them to catch. Now, uh, a lot about, of coral. I'm sorry, about the plankton, uh, just to kind of reel in just a little bit. Uh, can you take a minute and explain the nutrient levels and needed nutrient levels to keep, uh, just because it's small polyps, what does that say about nutrient levels that need to be in our tank? Uh, really nothing, actually. Um, I, again, that's that's another of the myths um, that's really associated with this name and with this terminology. You'll see corals with small polyps growing in extremely, extremely nutrient-poor areas. And by nutrient-poor, I don't mean there's no food available. That's a very common misnomer. There's a lot of plankton available to eat in these areas. But by nutrient-poor, what we usually mean is, is very, very dilute with regards to nitrate and phosphate. There's very, very little very little of those two substances. Now, there's a but huge there's... difference between nutrient-rich and nutrient-poor in our tanks versus nutrient-rich and nutrient-poor in the ocean. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, if you ask the hobbyists what's nutrient-rich, you know, what's high in nutrients, they might say, oh, you know, 20 parts per million nitrate, 50 parts per million nitrate. If you ask a coral reef biologist, what's high in nitrate, instead of talking in parts per million, they'll talk in parts per trillion. You know, yeah. They'll say, oh, maybe one part per trillion, 0.5 parts per trillion. You know, that, that's a reasonable amount of nitrate. And that's um, common anywhere you look in the ocean, right? I mean, for the most part. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and something, something that I, I think kind of what you're getting at is um, – a lot of times folks get the idea that in different reef zones, like say if you look at a four reef where you've got a lot of acropora growing and a lagoon where you've got other kinds of corals growing, they get the idea that the lagoon is very nutrient rich um, and interpret that as, you know, 10 parts per million nitrate, 50 parts per million nitrate. The differences in nature are still very small. Um, and what is considered nutrient rich in nature is still undetectable on a hobbyist test kit. If, if we scoop some water out of a lagoon that was considered pretty high in nutrients in nature and tested it with even a really good set of hobbyist test kits, it would come up as zero or it would come up really close to zero. You know, there, there just isn't any place on a coral reef where 
it's nutrient-rich like hobbyists think it's nutrient-rich. Okay, so now to kind of wrap that into, a, for a hobbyist perspective, um, uh, you know, as you said, there's some corals in the hobby that are said to be kept in nutrient-rich tanks and some that need nutrient-poor tanks. Uh, one of the common things is to say that soft corals need uh, high nutrients and um, that stony coral, or more specifically in the hobby, they'll say SPS coral, need very nutrient poor or low nutrient conditions. Now, basically what you're getting at here is that when you're talking about in the in the wild, in the actual reefs in the ocean, nutrient rich and nutrient poor in our aquariums, it, it doesn't it doesn't equate to what we're doing. So, we should always be trying to keep our aquariums in a quote-unquote nutrient poor state because it, there's nothing in the ocean that's going to live in what we would call a nutrient rich state. Absolutely. Absolutely. I yeah. I mean, it's really that's, complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, um, that, that's basically it. Um, what we, what we consider low in nutrients in aquariums is pretty high in nutrients compared to most coral reefs. Now it's possible to have very small areas, perhaps areas of upwelling where you've got really deep oceanic water come and that's usually high in nutrients. Well, even, even what we would consider you know, moderate in nutrients, maybe uh -huh. that's that's getting pumped up to the surface. And that happens in places like Panama, um, and place certain areas in Indonesia, certain places along the Great Barrier Reef. There are places where you get these natural upwellings, and for short periods of time, the nutrient levels on those reefs, that is, the nitrate and phosphate levels on those reefs would be detectable on a hobbyist test kit. It, they're still not what we would consider high per se, but they're above the level of detection, at least sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but on 99% of the reefs, 99% of the time, the nutrient levels, the nitrate and phosphate, are always below the level of the detection. So it would be my suggestion that any of the corals we keep in captivity are probably going to grow best in those conditions, so we should always strive to keep undetectable nitrate and phosphate conditions in our aquariums, no matter what kind of corals we're keeping, because that's the most natural. Right, right. Now, I, you know, I think we, we did a good job kind of explaining uh, the generalization of the myth uh, and a lot of the things regarding lighting and, and uh nutrient levels and water flow, specifically with the SPS, which is something that I've concentrated on before in the past. But let's take a minute and kind of break into the real story. And let's talk a little bit more about some of the other uh, types of coral that we often put this generalization to, uh, more specifically, the soft corals, uh, the zoanthids, the mushroom corals, and uh, then if we want, if we got some extra time, we can kind of get in a little bit more of the LPS, SPS type thing. But why don't you take a minute and let's start uh, right at the bottom with uh, zoanthids. I noticed in your article you had a, a nice little comment in there about the name of the zoanthids. Why don't you uh, start there and let's talk about those for a minute. Right, right. Uh, well, <laughs> kind of an interesting little thing. Um, uh, oftentimes hobbyists uh, tend to want to call them zoos or some variation of that, but there's only one O in the word. Zo is a prefix, um, and it means animal, um, similar to like zoanthellae, um, zoanthellae, et cetera, et cetera. Um, zoo is a place we go to see animals. Um, the etym etymologies of those two, um, the prefix and the word, are actually different. 
So they look similar, kind of, but they're actually not related. So it's just a coincidence that, that they kind of look similar. So, you know, to, to call them zoos, you know, a lot of people do it. Right, yeah, it's, it's not a big deal, but right. um, <laughs> it, if you're talking to somebody that knows better, it kind of makes you seem um, as though you don't know what you're talking about, maybe as well as you do. So it's probably best to avoid terms like that. Yeah, and I, I guess the, the the main point there is, uh, you know, a majority of this article, the main point of this article is to, to help hobbyists and help them understand that using the proper names and proper classifications when you're talking to people and when you're uh, looking for assistance is uh, the important thing uh, and not to use these generalizations and, and to kind of try to get away from common names. So I think that's kind of the main point there, at least for me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the the more we're being specific about these corals, um, the more we can expect to be successful. You know, you're, you're, no one's going to be truly successful at anything if they're making broad and sweeping generalizations. You know, you, you lose a lot of very important information doing that. Right. And there's so, so many kinds of corals. Um, if we're making broad and sweeping generalizations about these species, we're just not going to have very good success with them. Okay, so on that note, let's kind of get back to what we were uh, talking about. Here we go drifting again. Um, right. With the, you know, the zooanthids, uh, mushroom corals, soft corals, if you want to group those together, if you want to speak to them individually, that's up to you. But uh, kind of speak a, a little bit to the myth behind those and kind of explain to us what, you know, what's the real story behind this and why uh, these general generalizations aren't effective. Because, uh, you know, I, like I've mentioned before that when we're talking about SPS, LPS, and I've been able to clarify that before, but I haven't really got into mushroom corals, zooanthids, uh, soft corals before. So uh, let's start there. All right. Well, the major problem, or at least um, what, what I've um, come to see as a major problem for a lot of hobbyists, is oftentimes um, these three groups of corals, soft corals, zooanthids, mushrooms, mushroom polyps, are all said to need low light, or they're said to need high nutrient levels or need low water flow. And for a lot of them, they can survive in these conditions, although it's not necessarily the optimal environment for them. Just like I mentioned earlier, you can find a Carafera hyacinthus growing on a reef crest where it grows really well. You can also find it growing in a lagoon where it doesn't grow very well. Same for many of these corals. They can grow and survive in very low water flow and very low light levels oftentimes, but it's not necessarily the environment that they're going to do best. I've run into lots and lots of hobbyists over the years that were very worried, say, if they were upgrading their lights, um, going from something like VHOs up to metal halides, and they had soft corals in their tanks. They were very worried, or zoanthids or some of these other corals. They were very worried that the corals weren't going to be able to tolerate the brighter lighting. Um, I then explained to them, no, those corals will love it. What I would worry about is maybe the blastomusa in your tank or the scalemia or some of these other corals that they didn't necessarily even think about. Um, the reality is most of the common soft corals in the hobby, a lot of the zoanthids, many of the mushroom polyps actually are most abundant and grow maybe most abundantly in shallow water where they're getting a lot of water flow. Um, a lot of the common soft corals in particular, things like toadstool leathers, sarcophyton or devil's hand, bulbophytum, some of those corals, people think of them 
oftentimes as being completely different from, say, some of the acropora, you know, or some of the other corals that might grow in shallow water. Mm-hmm. When, if you go to a reef, you know, if you, if you actually get to see these guys, um, a lot of times they're growing right next to each other. They're growing in exactly the same environment. And to see them as needing completely different environmental parameters is just not accurate. You know, to have the best results um, with soft corals, with mushroom puffs, with zoanthids, for some of them, it's going to be bright light, strong water flow. But, you know, for some of them, they really are going to grow best in lower light, lower water flow. Um, it, it really, again, depends on the genus. And if we can get to the genus level for a lot of these guys, which some of them is going to be difficult, no doubt about that, um, but if we can at least make a best guess, a lot of times that'll get us close enough to where we're providing really good care for these corals, and they'll be much healthier than they would um, in in perhaps other sorts of conditions. Now, I think the important thing that we want to try to get across here when providing this information is that it's very common to see people either um, in internet forums uh, or, you know, even from your standpoint in a uh, in a fish store, a place that's selling these where people might come in and, and talk about them or, or ask questions. And they say, the, the problem is people may give the information and say, well, if you want to keep um, mushroom corals, you need low lighting or you need high nutrients. And, and, you know, just to kind of recap and reiterate the point, they don't need this. They can survive in the low lighting conditions and they might be able to survive in the high nutrient conditions. And I think the more we talk about this, the more it makes sense. Whereas a lot of these so-called SPS corals can't survive in low light conditions. Some species need the high light, whereas the the soft corals can tolerate both. So that's kind of led to this bad generalization that soft corals need low light and SPS need high light when it just happens to be what the two can tolerate. And there's a difference between what they can tolerate and what they can thrive. Oh yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, and that's, that's really, yeah, that's, um, that's kind of what we've done. Um, you know, years ago, um, decades ago, I suppose when people first really started to become um, successful with keeping some of these corals, um, you know, they were using what we would consider nowadays very weak water flow, very dim lighting, mm-hmm. um, and some of the corals survived. So whatever worked enough to allow the corals to survive, which was mostly soft corals, zoanthids, um, mushroom polyps, that's ki- that kind of became the proper way to do it without realizing that that's all they were doing is surviving. You know, right. they, they, they weren't, weren't growing. growing. They weren't flourishing. Exactly. They, they just weren't doing nearly as well as they could do. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really just a matter of tolerances. You know, if you, if you had a little shrew, which is a little mammal, has a super high fast metabolic rate, and you didn't feed that shrew for a few days, it would starve to death. If you had an elephant, which has a much slower metabolic rate, and you don't feed it for a few days, it will live just fine. It will be very, very hungry. Mm-hmm. Starving it for you know a week isn't good for it, but it can survive it. Um, and that's really kind of the situation where we've got here. For a lot of these corals, um, it's not ne- keeping them in certain conditions isn't necessarily something that's good for them, but th- it's 
survivable. If we were to keep them in um, other sorts of conditions, a lot of them would do much, much better. A lot of them would grow faster, um, be less prone to problems, you know, just really be very prolific. Okay, and just to kind of move on and, and kind of wrap up this this topic a little bit, uh, pretty much what we've come across is to state that the needs, uh, you know, I'll put that in quotes, the needs of a certain type of coral based upon physical appearance like that is, while it's a gross oversimplification and just a generalization, uh, there's some points when it has some validity, but most of the time it doesn't. Now, what is your recommendation to hobbyists that are listening to this and the hobbyists that are going to be reading uh, your article in, re in reef keeping? How, how do we fix this? I mean, you know, just to kind of go back to to the point that to say, you know, if someone were to come on, for example, let's say somebody comes on to Talking Reef forums and says, you know, I have this tank, these um, conditions, say I've got power compact lighting, I'm moving you know, 10 to 15 uh, tanks of, you know, of water in an hour, what can I keep in there? A, a common response would be to say, oh, you can keep mushroom corals, zoanthids, and you can keep soft coral. Now, while when we're talking about these things, there is some validity there, you can keep them. It might not be optimal conditions, but you can keep them. What's your recommendation for us hobbyists to fix this and be a little bit more accurate. I mean, needless to say, we're not all going to be scientists. And frankly, a lot of people don't really care enough to learn the scientific species names of all of these things. Where, where's the happy medium so we can keep the ease in requesting information and the ease of reference, but still get and be more accurate? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point. Um, I mean, most, most folks are not scientists. You know, this is not something that they go home and sweat over necessarily. This is a hobby. You know, it's, it's meant to be enjoyable. Um, what, what I think we really need to do is, um, for most of these corals, we're not going to ident identify them to the species level. Most corals, it's just simply not possible without going to what for most folks would be very extraordinary means. You know, most folks are not going to be inclined um, to snap off um, pieces of various corals and um, look at them under a microscope. You know, you could do that to find out what a coral is, but we really don't need to go that far for most of these. Mm -hmm. uh, for most corals, if we just simply can get it, get them down to the genus level, that's going to be good enough for a lot of these to describe their care pretty darn well. For really large genera, things like Acropora, Montifora, some of those really large genera where there are species that live all over the place on a reef, then we really need to start looking not only at genera, or at genus rather, um, but also at the growth form of the species, because that's mm -hmm. going to help us describe uh, where that coral would be found in nature. That's really what we need to do, is we just need to educate ourselves a little bit better. Now, you know, many hobbyists um, probably are not going to commit all these names to memory, and realistically, they don't need to. You know, I mean, it, no one going into a fish store probably needs to know every genus of every coral they might encounter. But what they probably should have, if they're intending to keep some of these animals, is one or two or three or several good references to tell them about them. You know, I, I wouldn't, for instance, go out and buy a car 
based on the color. <laughs> you know, I, I would learn something about that make or that model so that I can make an educated decision. You know, you know, that, know what I can actually, expect. I'm sorry, that's actually a, a, a great analogy. I mean, there's a lot of people, and even when I was starting in the hobby, I myself fall victim to this and am guilty of it, of, ooh, that's pretty gimme gimme, you know. It's it doesn't make sense to walk in and just look at something that's pretty and bring it home. Now, again, a lot of us make this mistake, and a lot of us need to learn from this mistake and help you know provide this type of information to others that you really need to understand uh, what you're getting. And I think one of the important things what you were mentioning is to have the references to look it up. Uh, but the other good thing that I you know that is to know what is in your tank already. So if you're not in a situation where you're just starting and you can walk into a fish store or a place that's selling these corals and look at this, if you were to ask, can I keep that, you know, some common questions that the fish store employee slash owner might ask are what type of tank do you have, what's your water flow, uh, what type of lighting that you have. But there's also more important things such as what else do you have in your tank? For example, there's a lot of Acropora species that cannot be kept in a tank that's dominated with leather corals or vice versa. You want to talk about that for a quick second? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that's something that, um, it, while it's certainly true of many um, Acropora, um, it's even more true of certain other corals. Um, in particular, um, something that it, it really disheartens me a lot of the time is I oftentimes see people mixing corals of the genus Euphilia, frog spawn hammer coral, mm -hmm. things like that, with um, um, some of the so-called leather corals, you know, a lot of the soft corals. Sometimes it works fine. You know, I've seen lots of tanks where both those uh, effects of corals were growing, you know, doing well, no problems at all. But for every case where they do fine, I could probably find you another case where that euphilia just collapses. You know, they don't do well at all. Um, and I actually wrote a little blurb about that in my article of an experience um, that I witnessed personally about how incompatible those species can be. Um, a lot of times people don't realize how aggressively uh, many of these corals are going to compete with each other. And if we're going under assumptions such as soft corals and LPS corals are good to combine, that's going to end up giving us a lot, a lot of dead corals. Right, because um, you can say the, the leather corals, which is a soft coral, and the euphilia, which is, you know, would be called a, an LPS coral, to say that LPS coral and soft coral be, can, can be kept in the tank, that's something that a lot of people would say. But because we're not breaking it down to the just the next level below that, to say that um, these leathers versus the, you know, we need to take it one level deeper to get the real information because to say soft corals and LPS, you would totally miss this problem and nobody would tell you about it and you'd put them in your tank and next thing you know, you got dead corals. Exactly. exactly. And it can happen quickly. I've seen, I've seen um, uh, mortality within a day, a few days sometimes. Um, you know, and if it's not something you know to look for, you're not going to have any idea what's going on. All you're going to know is the corals are dying. And, you know, again, it, it all comes back to education. Um, if, if you're not educating yourself as a hobbyist, no one else is going to do it. You know, mo most, um, most fish stores um, just simply don't have 
the staff or the resources of their time, especially the time um, often, to be able to educate hobbyists adequately in all the finer points. You know, you're not, you're not right. going to do um, most anything in your home without educating yourself. Why would you, um, you know, take in these living organisms without educating yourself about them? And, you know, uh, there, there are several aspects of that. Not only are we usually spending quite a bit of money for these organisms, so if they die, we're out quite a bit of money. There's also the fact that, you know, taking something home that you really like and putting it in your tank and then watching it die is really kind of a bummer. You know, that causes a lot of heartache for Aquarius, and it makes a lot of people drop out within the first year, the first couple of years, yeah. because just certain mistakes that they're making, um, again, because they're not adequately informing themselves. Uh, again, just to, to reiterate that, you're not going to go out and uh, you're not going to go and buy a sugar glider, which is a, you know, a, a kind of an exotic flying squirrel looking pet, not knowing anything about it. To take it to a more common level, if you didn't know anything about a dog, you wouldn't go out and buy a dog to, and try to keep it and raise it. I mean, it's it's important to you know, learn the needs of what we're trying to keep in our tank. Uh, other, there, there's been so many times when people bring corals home, put them in their tank. You know, just going back to this uh, leather coral and you know a hammer coral or something like that. You'll have a loss of one of these species, and you would think, God, I have no idea what I did wrong. It must be, you know, I don't have strong enough lighting to keep LPS coral and I can only keep soft coral. And that has, you know, it's totally irrelevant and it has absolutely nothing to do with the problem. Where um, a little bit of education uh, and, and some time to look into this probably would have prevented that from happening in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I've kind of discussed this topic here and there with acquaintances before. Um, I remember, remember, uh, and acquaintance, a gentleman I was discussing kind of this general idea with um, a while ago, and kind of his contention was, um, yeah, this is all fine and good, but you can't expect most hobbyists to go home and, um, you know, learn this much about all their clothes. You can't expect hobbyists to go home and learn what every genus of coral is and how, how to take care of all the different genera in their tank, perhaps. My response to him was, I don't expect that every hobbyist is going to go home and do this. I expect that successful hobbyists are going to go home and do this. Exactly, <laughs> and that's the absolute truth. I, I mean, the people that are real successful in this, I mean, seriously, if you go into these forums on the Internet, and they're, they're, you know, there's a lot of them, you know, if you go in there, the people that are successful, the people that are giving the advice, are the people that have learned this information. And in order for you to be as a hobbyist to be successful keeping and this holds true for fish for your invertebrates you know the anemones the coral this is not just coral this it goes for everything you really need to be educated you know on what you have now you don't you know as chris mentioned and as i've said before you don't need to go and you know learn every bit of and read every bit of scientific information in every journal on you know the specific thing that you're trying to do or the specific coral or, or, or whatever, but you do need to make yourself educated. And, and I think that's one of the biggest underlying points of the article that you're, you're writing here is that hobbyists in the hobby community, local fish stores, 
everybody is to blame for this and we all do it it's you know the problem of not you know asking the right questions to other people not correcting other people when someone says you know sps or how what do i need to keep sps but there's an underlying foundation of education that's just kind of missing and you know i I really think that that's the important thing that you're trying to get across here yeah absolutely um i mean if, if hobbyists are better educated about how and where um, the corals, and not just the corals, um, but the fish, the anemones, the invertebrates, everything that they're trying to keep. If they're better educated about how and where those organisms live, they're going to be so, so much more successful with them. Right. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's really the, the point of this. Um, we, we all want to be successful Aquarius. We all want to have nice tanks. None of us wants to kill things. Um, and if we take, you know... Um, a few tens of dollars and a few tens of hours, we're going to be much better at doing these things. Yes, yes. Well, Chris, I want to, I need to kind of wrap this up because we are running a little long on time here. So uh, I just want to take a minute and thank you for coming on and sharing this information about this article with us. Um, and uh, that's going to pretty much wrap up the show. So uh, again, I just want to say thanks for coming on and talking about this with us. Yeah, no problem. It was my pleasure. Excellent. Thank you. Again, I just want to remind everybody that was Chris Jury. Uh, he's got a feature article this month uh, in March in Reefkeeping Magazine, which can be found at reefkeeping.com. So make sure you go to the site and check out the information and take a full read through that article, and you can get a lot more information there. And don't forget to check out the other Reefkeeping articles at reefkeeping.com. Such items this month include the second part of Sanjay Joshi's article, The Basics of Light, uh, also the ABCs of Image Posting, uh, a great article about image post-processing and how to get that stuff prepared for using them in forums and online and such. Uh, And again, there are many, many other great articles, so make sure you head over to reefkeeping.com and check those articles out. And of course, don't forget about the famous Reefkeeping Top 10 list. Uh, This month, you'll get top 10 most useless purchases you've made for your tank, so make sure you head over and check that out. Uh, again, that's that's about all for this month's Reefkeeping edition of the Talking Reef podcast. Check out the Talking Reef website at www.talkingreef.com and subscribe to the feed to hear all the great Talking Reef podcasts. And I will talk to you next month with another great interview.